Got every, we've got people tucked into every corner tonight. Hello over there. <laughs> anyway, glad to, glad to be with all of you. I was thinking during the sitting tonight of a title of a couple books that I read in the early years of my practice. One was called Dropping Ashes on the Buddha. And then another one had this line, I think it was the title of the book, but maybe it was a, a passage, but it said, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. And I was thinking about this tonight because uh, for me, the, the essence of the, of the Dharma, the essence of the teachings, the essence of what we're doing together um, is... Um, it's not about taking on the affectations of a, of a, um, a monastic, a uh, person who, who looks any particular way. Uh, it's, not, um, it's not even becoming a Buddhist. It's not becoming anything. It's not becoming a meditator. It's not even meditating. It's simply as... Uh, when it really comes down to it, it's really just being aware, being awake. When the Buddha was asked by someone on the road, you know, who are you? They were taken by his countenance and his, his uh, peacefulness, his light. They said, well, who are you? What are you? Are you, are you a god? Or are you a, you know, a this or that? And he he answered no to everything, but then he said, well, what are you? And the, and the Buddha said, I'm awake. So really the essence of the teaching is about being awake and awakening to our natural state, which is awake, to our true nature. It isn't about, even though the uh, the teachings are filled with, uh, you know, I once talked to my one of my friends about the uh, essence of the Buddha's teaching being awake, in that whole story about when he was asked who he was, he said, awake. My friend Hanuman, who I've spoken about here before, said, yeah, and he was a compulsive talker. <laughs> he did, for the next 45 years, talk about what he realized, but it all came down to that simple realization of his nature being uh, wakefulness. And that that is each of our nature, so utterly ordinary and familiar, but completely mysterious, the awareness through which we're perceiving. It's beyond our name, beyond our form, beyond any kind of identity or description or role. It's the essence of what each of us is, he realized. He called it by many names, Buddha nature, unconditioned, unborn, luminosity, uh, freedom, but forgetting all the names, it's simply being aware, being awake. And that's what what it comes down to. So it's a beautiful thing that the teachings have been carried in this very elaborate monastic system over 2,500 years, and that Within that system, the Buddha created this institution, you could say, of, of monasticism where 
those who ordain or commit themselves to the holy life are invited to, not just invited, but, um, but required to take 127 precepts where they practice in every detail of their life. It's beautiful that there is this, this model of the teachings and then the, the recommendations for the various practices that can be done, the practice of, of loving kindness, the practice of a non-interfering, non-judgmental attention to whatever's presenting itself moment by moment, the importance of the, the arousing of the conditions that bring, on, that bring concentration, tranquility, a calm abiding, and the capacity that to, sen- to then sen- see deeply into our nature. It's beautiful that all those teachings are there. But they, it really still comes down to what's, what's happening right now. That's where it's fulfilled. The whole of our practice, the, the essence of the teachings, the end of the practice is what's the state of your heart and mind right now? And do you know it? What are you doing? What are you feeling? What are you saying? What are you thinking? Are you, are you living? Uh, are you... Are you acting in ways that are causing you and others suffering? Are you acting in ways that are bringing harmony and, and love, connection, caring? It's that simple. It's very easy to complicate it. We get so far, we can get so far into exactly, using the teachings, get so far into exactly what the Buddha warned were the poisons uh, that cause us suffering. We can use the teachings to reinforce and create the same poisons that we're trying to un- unwind ourselves. He essentially said, in his compulsive speaking, <laughs> I'm so happy he spoke, even though he was just awake. But he said, you know, we all, have, we all have stress, and what keeps us in a state of stress, and what turns it into mental turmoil, is grasping and attachment, and particularly the form of grasping and attachment in, the, in, in regard to identity, identifying the tendency to make mine, to make that which is changing, unreliable, uncontrollable, impersonal, vaporous, uh, ephemeral, making that which is unreal in that way, making it into me and mine. Making, building, our, building the house of ourselves around something that's not so substantial or real. And he said we basically do that four ways. We build the house of ego around our um, and identification and attachment to pleasures of the senses. We build so much of our identity around our relationship to stuff, things, experiences, people, Lots and lots of clinging and identification. So we identify with all those, all the domains of the sensual world, which is beautiful, but it's not a very reliable source of happiness. It's a source of a lot of pleasure, but also a lot of pain. It's a source of a lot of gain. It's also a source of a lot of loss. It's a source of a lot of praise when we have a lot, source of a lot of blame when we lose it, uh, and on and on it goes. So the first one is we 
become identified and attached with the world of sense pleasures. A lot of identity around belief, as he put it, belief in rites and rituals, how things are supposed to be done, what a proper meditator is like. What does a proper meditator do? They sit a certain way, they breathe a certain way, they act a certain way, they speak a certain way. This the Buddha described as one of the root causes of suffering, attachment to rites and rituals, how things are supposed to be done. And we fight about this stuff. This has led to sectarian wars, even not necessarily outer uh, physical battles in the Buddha Dharma, but a lot of a lot of Dharma combat, a lot of mental battles based on whose idea is right and how you're supposed to practice, how you're supposed to sit, eyes open, eyes closed, full lotus, half lotus, quarter lotus, and it's endless, just like home improvement. <laughs> Getting it right around our... our uh, rites and rituals is just, it's hopeless. And what ends up happening when we, when the conditioning of being attached to rites and rituals sinks into our being, we become calcified and not even, and we may not even know it. It's happened to me in my early years of being, being trained in the Mahasi, Mahasi Sayadab, a Burmese master, his style of practice was about careful mental noting, moment by moment. It's one particular style of practice. But I became so uh, immersed in this, anytime I would hear somebody doing something else, it, it seemed wrong. And I didn't even know the, how much identity view had built up around my, my way of practice. And it, when it fell off, it, it became, it was, it, revealed itself as completely and utterly absurd to be identified with a rite and a ritual of how you're supposed to practice. It's craziness. It has nothing to do with that Dharma essence. Be aware. Be awake. You are awake in your natural state. Don't stray away from that. Just to bring Kabir in, He's very hip to this tendency of the mind. He says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. Because what happens is when we get bound up in these different uh, attachment and identity with sense pleasures, what I want, what I want to get rid of, where I want to go, who I want to be, it's, it's endless. What happens is that we just keep spinning an imaginary world. We so simply overlook, so overlook the simplicity of, of just sitting and being. Did you notice tonight when you just let your mind for a few moments sink into your body? And your body fill your mind. Let go of the hopes and dreams, plans, worries, or just notice them but not feed them, know that you're here thinking about the future, and let go of the, the memories and associations. They may come, but we know I'm here thinking about the past. If you let yourself do that for a moment, you, may, you discovered reality. And reality is pretty undescribable, indescribable, pretty simple, pretty mysterious. 
It's amazing that we're sitting here. Nobody could really explain it. Just that we can even have this conversation, or we're not really having a conversation. We are having a conversation. That's really mysterious, the fact that we're actually communicating, although I'm the only one talking. (laughs) That's kind of wild. Anyway, Kabir put it this way. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. And we know that one thing is the I-making and my-making. I, me, and mine. This is attachment to, through, in the first case, through sense pleasures. Second, through rites and rituals. The third is one that I'm, I struggle with every day. And it's the identity view that gets developed or the attachment that develops, the complication that develops, the proliferation in my mind that develops around views and opinions. And these days it's much more around uh, politics and, and left, right, this, you know, all of that. And I have to be especially vigilant to... Uh, not to get too bound up in that as, a, um, as the source of my well-being, my views. Because anyone, any position is ultimately, because it's based on ideas, is like quicksand. There is no rest in it. And I have to keep fighting the, great, the good fight. And, of course, if I can see that, that this is just the game of politics, this is just the game, this is just the... Or just really come from the place of of caring and and especially the intention not to to um, foment in my mind or in the minds of others ill will. Then I, we can you can engage in this whole world of views and opinions and about everything. But if you get caught up in it, it's it is samsara. It's endless suffering. It's it's a loop. It's unpleasant. And it just feeds a sense of, of, of suspended happiness. I can't be happy until they agree with me, until we get rid of the bums, if you know what I mean, whichever side you're on. So attachment to sense pleasures, attachment to, view, to uh, rites and rituals, attachment to views and opinions, and ultimately the last and deepest uh, attachment that really encompasses all of the other kinds of attachments and identifications is the basic attachment to the concept or view of self. That, uh, that behind this whole process of me, of, of this body and mind, that there is some kind of entity, some kind of abiding, stable, point called me. 
that everything refers to and everything is happening to, that one who uh, we imagine ourselves to be, that one that exists independently apart from others, is in truth ultimately non-existent. It does not exist. There is nothing, there is no element of us that ultimately exists independently apart from everything else. So I was talking about last night, we, we enter our, we, we are caught, we are embedded in a web of, of mutuality, of inter, interbeing, interdependence. And what, uh, what lives inside of me lives inside of you. And there really is no, um, there really is no absolute separation. To the degree that I become identified with this body, as me and mine, I suffer because it, because it, it's not something that that is ownable. It doesn't belong to anyone. As long as I become identified with the moods and emotions, I suffer because even the moods and emotions are not me, are not mine. And the thoughts, not me, not mine. Thoughts are their own thinkers. You've heard the name, the book, by Mark Epstein. Thoughts without a thinker. This is the realization of the Dharma. That, uh, that nothing whatsoever in this process of life, inner, internal or external, can be taken to be me and mine. To let go of this, this um, maniacal tendency to identify with everything. Whether it's sense pleasures and what I want and what I have. I, whenever I think of identification with sense pleasures and what I want and what I have. I always think of, of Thoreau who said, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My Thanksgiving's perpetual. He says, it's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. He says, no run, wait, oh, how I laugh at my vague indefinite riches for no run on my bank can drain it. For my wealth isn't possession, it's enjoyment of being. How can we ever have that enjoyment of being if our identity is so tethered to what I have, to what I want, to where I'm going? It is in our nature to go places, to have and to, to enjoy and to experience the sensual world. But, uh, but none of that has anything to do ultimately with being awake. It doesn't matter. Awake doesn't, de- your wakefulness doesn't depend on what you do or where you go or what's happening in your life or in your mind. It's pr- it, is, it is unconditioned. It's your nature. You simply have to not go anywhere to be awake. When I say awake, I don't mean as opposed to asleep at night. I mean awake, aware. So this conversation about identification with the concept of self, belief in the concept of self, that it's, it's subtle. It's not, whenever this comes up in, the, in a, any kind of Dharma talk, people will say, well, I'm here, you're there. And that's understood as conventional reality. We all, each of us is so uniquely individual that we never need to, we don't have to give that up. But even that which is, which is unique and individual, ultimately is, is not ownable. 
We can, yes. The question is about the body not being yours. It's nobody else's either. <laughs> it's nobody else's either. Having the experience of getting migraines and being betrayed by the body. Yes, yes. Yeah, she said that it's uh, she's has a she's having a different way of viewing it right now as though her body's experiencing this thing and and she's going along for the ride. And my my cousin who had a a very uh, virulent form of lung cancer as he was as he was dying. I'm not <laughs> I shouldn't bring that in. He said uh, my body has cancer, I don't. And so there was that we can develop more, um, less identification with our body. Now, if you've been disassociated from your body, been traumatized in some way where you've, become, where you've been disembodied, it's really important that you, that you feel the body, that you inhabit it completely and make it your own. It's your body is your body, not my body. So on the conventional level, you've got to really, we really, what allows us to function is to be embodied. But if we, if we can breathe, if we can feel safe and at home in the body, aware in the body, we can also begin to discover that this body is not ours. We can see that the body is doing its own thing, that our body is maybe producing migraines. There's, yeah, that's a, it's a little bit more complicated with migraines. Sometimes it is just the body doing its thing. Sometimes there is an interaction between our um, our psychological, emotional body. And, but if we pay attention to all of that, if we open to our mind and our body, we see on one hand it's unique, individual, but on the other hand it's not something that I can own. It's something that's happening. You cannot tell your body not to age, not to get sick. Well, you can tell it all these things. You can tell it, don't age, don't get sick, don't die. <laughs> you can say, I own you, and it's still going to show you the rental agreement at the end. It's just the way it is. And the same with our moods that we tend to be so identified with. The moods are just flowing like weather. And the thoughts, we are often uh, visited by beautiful thoughts and also often tormented by, by compulsive thinking, by obsessive thinking. And those thoughts, if we really look at them, they're thinking themselves. So we don't want to fight with them. We don't want to own them as, oh, my mind does this, and this is me. This is the compulsive mind being compulsive. And the more space we have around it, the more we'll understand, yeah, this may be the unique expression of this individuality, but I'm not making all this happen. This is all just, you didn't ask for, you've all heard the statistic that we have 65,000 thoughts every day and that 90% are repeats from the day before. Do you think that you volitionally think those thoughts every day? Yes, now I'm going to think the same 90%. I'm going to think the same terrible thought about myself again. Yes, that will certainly make me feel better. No. 
just logically speaking, if we pay attention even a moderate amount, we'll see that thoughts are their own thinkers, feelings are their own feelers, sensations are, the, are arising and vanishing all on their own. And we develop a little space and take our mind and body a little less personally. And the less personal we take things, the more we let go, we touch into the, the essence of what the Buddha recommended to, in order to, to rest in that wakeful presence that you are. His recommendation is let go. Liberation through non-clinging. Don't cling to sense pleasures. Don't cling to views and opinions. Don't cling to rites and rituals. Don't, ultimate, don't cling especially to me and mine and I. It's just a dream. The one you think you are is, as one Zen master said, you... Uh, who are you? You think you know, you don't know. Keep don't know mine, because as soon as you say, I'm this or I'm that, you land in a kind of contraction. You, you're not, as Emerson put it, I think, he says, what or who you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. It's so beyond some idea, some little version some story. It's so, you are, we are so vast and ultimately so simple. We are just awake. Any other description is, um, is partial. So be the wakefulness that you... Um, be what you are. And as one teacher put it, and don't stray away from yourself. There is no, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, there is no salvation in time. It's just, it's here or nowhere. So be awake. You're awake anyway, you just have to realize it. Let's see if there's anything I want to read to... um, Well, this implies that it's all about here and now. Someone sent this to me from the Internet. It was a sign that says, The past, the present, and the future walked into a bar. It was tense. (laughs) Sorry. That was a slow slow reaction. So I think that um, maybe it's this is a good place to read Derek Walcott, who's who reminds us not to uh, stray too far away. He says the time will come in his poem called "Love After Love." The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, 
the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So that wakefulness, that feast that you are, your life that's, that has no inside or outside, that, has, that is so familiar yet so mysterious, uh, is, includes everything. As Rumi put it, we are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in every moment. How can we remember? How can we not forget? That's why we practice. We practice familiarizing ourselves, getting used to being awake, being connected to life right where it connects with us and not straying away from ourselves, not getting bound up in the, in the four attachments of sense pleasures, rites and rituals, views and opinions, and selves. Not being Buddhists, not being Hindus, not being whatever ism or title. You can play with them if, they, if it feels like it helps you but really just being awake. Is that so complicated? Is that so far away? All that structure, that's why I was saying I was so appreciative that the teachings were held in this structure of monasticism and all these teachings because it kept, it carried the vessel of the very simple purity of be aware, be here, don't stray away from yourself. Because otherwise, if, if, it was, if we didn't have the teachings, it just wouldn't have that, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, um, we just wouldn't, we wouldn't get it. <laughs> Please. That it, don't stray away from yourself means uh, don't get lost in the imagined versions of yourself. Don't get lost in the imagination of the past, the imagination of the future. Don't get lost in what's not real. Don't cling to, just be present. It's just another way of saying, just be yourself. Just, just be here. See, if you're not in the idea of yourself, you really express your, unique, your, your uniqueness in a much more full way, in a much more efficient way. But if you're bound up in all of where you want to go and what you want to do and who you want to be and how you're not there already, and then you, it, it's, we become really stilted, self-conscious, embarrassed, fearful, worried, and, and on and on and on. And if this is not a worried, 
stressed out, exhausted, bound up world of humanity. I don't know what is. But the good news is it's possible to wake up out of that dream. And and that wakefulness is really a split second, a half breath away. And that's why we practice. That's what I mean by don't stray away from yourself. Thank you for the question. I think that's probably a good point to um, to stop unless there is any last comment, concern. Anyway, I appreciate you listening. I was kind of f- full of this tonight, <laughs> so I wanted to share it. Uh, before we stop, there's a few things I wanted, uh, a few announcements I want to make, a, f- a little sharing of the of the blessings of our practice and what we do each week. But first, I'd like to us all to hold someone in our hearts who uh, is a mem- someone who sits with us regularly. Her name is Amy Campo, and she is in the hospital presently, having just had a mastectomy. Mas- mastectomy. And she's experiencing some fluid in her lungs and probably quite uh, unsettled and because we are, by very deeply conditioned habit, pretty identified with our bodies, and it's not easy being human. And just as you would be if you were in a similar situation, she, could, uh, she can use all the care and attention that we can provide her in our thoughts. So please hold Amy Campo in your thoughts right now. And we'll just, however you can imagine her, whatever, just hold her name in your mind and just pour all of your love and caring and wish for her good health and healing and share all the blessings of your life and your practice with her and all the blessings of our practice together here tonight with her. And we wish Amy and we wish all of us and all beings everywhere happiness and peace, safety, protection, health and strength as much as possible given limitations of our body. And we wish her and we wish ourselves and all beings everywhere ease of being, ease in our hearts and a sense of well-being. And we finally have a deep wish that our practice tonight and every day be dedicated to the welfare of Amy and, uh, and all beings everywhere. As we really, truly do not exist ourselves alone apart from each other. But please dedicate your practice tonight to Amy and all beings and um, wish everybody well. So I'd just like to punctuate that with a little gong, and then I have a few announcements. So thank you, Buddhas. Buddha just means awake. So a couple announcements. One, I have a day-long, which I don't uh, have too many of this year. I have a day-long on Saturday call, uh, entitled Calming the Restless Mind, and it's suitable for new people and experienced meditators, and I wish all of you would come and sit for the day at Spirit Rock. It's beautiful out there. 
We'll sit, we'll walk, we'll sit, we'll walk, we'll talk about calmness, we'll talk about restlessness, we'll talk about all the things that lead to calm, all the th- things that lead to restlessness, and hopefully we'll reverse course and uh, calm our restless minds. And then last, just a reminder that uh, we are here, we practice in this way and have for 2,500 years uh, because of the psych- of the mutuality of the process of giving and receiving. Teachings have always been offered freely, and those who have taken them have uh, offered freely in return to support those who offer them. The way that works here is we, um, we, I put out my begging bowl and invite you, if you feel to, to offer something, and you can offer to the, if you want it to be tax deductible, to the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church, if you want to write a check, put Mission Dharma on the memo line, you can offer cash, or the website has PayPal. And we also put in the basket and ask, as part of our practice of dana or generosity, the support for the room rental, which is $150 a week, $600 a month. This month it's actually $150 more because we have five Tuesdays. And so any support for the room rental, teacher dana, much appreciated, and we become, we just enter that stream that's gone on for uh, for thousands of years, and thank you in advance for all support and especially for your practice. Thanks. See you on Saturday, all of you, and if not, next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.